Get ready to step into scripture with Matt and Tina. Hey everyone, welcome to season four of the Step Into Scripture podcast. This season is called Shadows, and we are working our way chronologically through the Bible in the year 2024. We started this season at the beginning of the year with an introductory episode. We're now on episode eight, and we are seven weeks into our reading the Bible all the way through chronologically this year. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm the author of the book Step Into Scripture. This is my husband, Matt. And I'm so glad to be here with you and everybody else today because I do believe this is the most powerful thing that a Christian can do in their walk is growing closer to Christ through his word. I totally, totally agree with that. Now, if you started reading at the beginning of the year, again, you're on week seven of your reading. That is days 43 through 49. And on the blue letter chronological reading plan, which is what we're using in this week, you're covering Exodus 39 and 40, and then moving into Leviticus, Leviticus chapter chapters 1 through 18. I think it's always important to say when we start reading the book of Leviticus that this is not where your reading plan goes to die. (laughs) Many people fall off of their Bible reading plan when they come to the book of Leviticus and given it can be a difficult book to get through, but we hope that this podcast is going to supplement your reading in such a way that you find meaning through the new covenant connections that we're going to look at in the book of Leviticus. So, One of the very difficult things about this book is a concept that is confusing to us that we find in the book of Leviticus, the idea of clean and unclean. This is something we see repeated throughout the Old Testament book of Leviticus and in the law. And then when we come to the New Testament, what we'll see today is this idea gets twisted and there it's even used to justify racism. And we're going to see how Jesus put that idea to bed. So, We find in Leviticus that there are times when people or things or animals are unclean. And we want to just start by talking about what does God even mean by that? What does he mean when he calls something unclean? So we're going to kick off today by defining what scripture means by clean and unclean based on the use of these words in God's word. And what we find there is that these terms were used to describe the condition of something relative to its ability to be in the presence of God. So an unclean thing could not be in God's presence. We kind of saw that in our last episode, Matt, where you talked about the idolatry that the Israelites participated in at Mount Sinai when they were receiving the law. And because of that, God said to them, I'm going to keep my promise because God doesn't break his promise. He was still going to send them on to the promised land that he said he would give to Abraham's descendants, but he wasn't going to go with them because he said, you're a stiff necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God can't be in the presence of unrighteousness because he is righteous and he is clean and we are unclean. And and that's where we saw the institution of this whole sacrificial priesthood tabernacle system. It was God's answer to needing to be in the presence of these people. And so he put all these things in place. So when we talk about something being clean in scripture, what we mean is that it's able to be in the presence of God. And so on the other side of that, being unclean meant that a person or an animal or a thing could not share God's presence. And there are subsets in these categories. Uh, There is ritual purity, and then there's moral purity. And we'll see some of that in the book of Leviticus. But we just want to dig into what is the purpose of all this today. Leviticus 11 through 15 is really where we find 
a lot of this information. That's where we find God's laws about ritual purity. And we learn through his laws there an important lesson about our need for atonement also. So God's law was never meant to be just a checklist, just a list of things so that we could be considered good. But instead, it was his requirements for holiness intended to expose our need for his holiness because we are not holy on our own. They were also protective. I think a lot of times people ask why. They'll see some stuff in Leviticus and say that doesn't make sense. And we forget they're nomadic people. Yeah. And they have the same allergies and stuff that we would have today. But in those days, if you took a large population of people and say a shellfish allergy were to break out, people would look at that as though God was against them. Right. And so God does pull them away from certain things that are unclean, but also things that are potential dangers for the entire populace. Sure. So that he can keep them safe and keep them from being afraid, right? Right. Um, another thing that we see historically, they he's given them something that gives them uh, some structure. They come out of Egypt and Egypt actually used this very same system. I don't want to take a lot of time, but later when we see the Pharaoh Ramesses, he would conquer a civilization and give them an outline just like Leviticus, extremely um, detailed, worded, things to do to be in the presence of the community, to keep the community safe, to keep the community healthy, to keep the community um, pure, and to be in his presence. Matter of fact, Ramesses actually made a tabernacle that he would sit in to come into the presence of the people. Wow. And so we know historically Moses was a part of the Egyptian court. And so I don't think Leviticus is something where we look at and see senseless laws. Right. We see a culture that they have been submissive to that God is now using to purify them, right? Yes. And we see the brilliance and the education of Moses being able to take a culture and tie people to a submissiveness of God that's going to keep them safe through a nomadic period of their journey. Right. So here are just a breakdown of some of the things we find in these chapters of Leviticus, specifically 11 through 15. Leviticus 11, that's going to deal with clean and unclean food. Leviticus 12 talks about uncleanness that a woman experiences after childbirth. Leviticus 13 gives regulations about skin diseases and molds that could make a person or a thing unclean. Leviticus 14 gives directions about cleansing from uncleanness that resulted from skin diseases and molds. And then Leviticus 15 deals with bodily discharges that make a person unclean. These are those cringy chapters that yeah. when we were always doing reading plans with our kids, we would come to these and go, okay, we'll just read through this really fast. And the kids are like, oh, we don't want to hear it. Well, I also think that we, we tend to have a Bible set of glasses on and then a, a worldly set of glasses. So we read it differently, but we forget. There are, he's also, before there are terms, talking about bacteria. Yeah. He's also, before there are terms, talking about skin infections. Um, we're looking at mold issues. We're looking at health issues that they did not have our terms for back then. And so, yes, there is a spiritual cleanliness, but he's also talking about health. And he's looking at it from a medical and scientific standpoint of things that people were ignorant of in those days. So that's, so that's an important thing to point out here is that unclean does not necessarily equal immoral. Just because something was unclean doesn't mean it was necessarily sinful. And that's why I mentioned earlier that there are subsets in this unclean category. There was moral uncleanness, but there was also ceremonial or ritual uncleanness. And so obviously a woman is not in sin because she's recently had her menstrual cycle. That was a ceremonial or ritual uncleanness that she was experiencing. And so 
What we find here is that some of just the everyday stuff of life, just being human, could make someone unclean so that they required atonement. Now, atonement, let's define that. That is reconciliation between God and man. And while we do see God's genius in some of these laws, uh, his giving direction so that a community of a million plus people could be healthy on a journey through the wilderness, I think another thing that this tells us is just the very condition of our humanity makes us unclean. We need atonement. We need the intervention of God so that we can be reconciled to him because we are just inherently sinful. And if we look at people coming out of a slave culture being taught dignity. So maybe maybe it's along the lines of cleanliness of my, I can't help the environment I was in, but before I make myself presentable, I still clean myself from that environment. Yes. And, and health-wise, so if I, I, I grew up in the 80s, if someone smoked in the house and I didn't smoke, it still affected me. Right. So God was teaching them that your your culture, the, the environment that you're in can still affect you in a negative way. But he's teaching them, even if it's something that is not morally wrong, but it's impure, to purify yourself because you're a representative of freedom now. You're a representative of God's people. Have have honor, dignity, integrity. And that's hard for people that are coming out of slavery and regret. Right. Right? Now, as we move through this, what we're going to find is that Whenever a person became unclean, then atonement was needed so that God could dwell with his people, so that they could return to the state of clean where they could be in the presence of God. Now, for purification, in Leviticus, God taught his people to remain ritually pure by living differently than the culture around them. And we'll talk more about that in next week's episode when we dig into some of the specific different laws in Leviticus that call for separateness, but they were to avoid, for instance, touching things that could taint them and cause them to become impure. And if they became impure, then atonement was needed. They needed a reconciliation, a purification to bring them back to God. This is going to be something we're going to see throughout the New Testament. These are shadows. And so, I mean, one of the things that always stands out to me is even in the church today, there are commands of when impure things come in that we are to put them out and have nothing to do with them. Gossip, slander, divisions, those things carry the same consequences from the Old Testament just with a grace of not death, right? But to be put out, to not have anything to do with, to not eat with, to not fellowship. And so as the Israelites are moving through the wilderness, they're going to receive ongoing instructions about purity in the camp. And what we can learn in the New Testament is purity in our life, purity in our home, purity in the church. And these shadows are going to point us towards heavenly realities, and we have to see those for how we're going to be in Christ, right? So people had to be clean ritualistically, morally, and physically to be in the presence of God. So let's take on ritual cleanliness for a second. So when a person was unclean, it meant that they had to be quarantined. They had to be removed from the city. And one reason is you're a danger to others, but also it was dangerous to be in the presence of God when you were unclean. Does that make sense? And I think today a lesson we can learn is we forget because of grace that it's not just dangerous to others when we are being unclean. 
but it is dangerous towards ourselves. So we can become unclean by skin diseases, bodily discharges, we come in contact with the dead, certain foods were considered unclean, and, and that's until New Testament times. We've got to remember they're nomadic at this point, and so it's really important nomadic people are not properly handling food. They don't have the, the ability to diagnose and understand if there are allergies and different pieces, but this is going to change in the New Testament. Jesus is going to say it's not what goes in that makes us unclean, it's what comes out. Um, in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see how how Christ is integrating the Gentiles into the church, and he uses food with Peter as an example of that. And it was, it was much easier to become unclean than to return to a state of clean because the process for entering back into the community took time and intentionality, such as the examination by a priest of skin disease described in Leviticus 13. And I think that's important because we're going to see a New Testament change in Christ but he also establishes a church, and he also establishes eldership over that church. And if we have at any point been removed from the church community, we also must go through the proper channels for restoration into the church community. So we see that fulfilled as we read through Timothy and Titus. In the New Testament, Jesus came and touched unclean people, lepers, a woman suffering chronic bleeding, where she touched the hem of his garment, the dead, he raised the dead. Jesus, he, he, he goes beyond these things because now there is hope. But rather than being... I have to put my hand back here. But rather than being made unclean by their defilement, Christ's holiness made them clean. Anyone else who touched them would have been made unclean, but Jesus made them whole. The contagiousness worked backwards. So let's look at Jesus. Just because he could make people clean, doesn't mean that there was no cost that he would endure, right? So look at Leviticus' instruction about skin diseases. Now, chapter 11, verse 45. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face, and cry, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. There's a weight that comes whenever you read that. Sure, uncleanliness was an isolating condition where you couldn't even be in fellowship with people. You had to be isolated and alone. But it, it taught you the value of community. Yes. Right? So you were, you were twice as cautious before you would touch anything or go near anything. I think today in the church, that's one of the things we miss is the caution of what we touch of what we associate with. Because... In reality, there's not a lot of consequence. The church allows uncleanliness to get inside, and that can hurt us greatly. Well, and just as a side note, not only does the church allow it, but the divisions in the church, the divisions in Christianity, have really created a space for a consumer culture where if... Well, it's unfair if you put me outside. I should be able to infect. Right. And the world looks at it and says, well, I may have diseases too, so I don't like the thought of someone being able to be put outside. But the whole purpose of it was not just to put someone outside, it was to, to show them the dangers of infecting others, the dangers of what we touch, the dangers of what we associate with them. Remember, Jesus said it's not what we eat that makes us unclean, it's what comes out, so what comes out of our mouth. But also guarding our heart, what are we taking in in spiritual terms, right? In the New Testament, Mark 1, Jesus heals this man with leprosy, so that he can go back to the community. And as, as we watch this, Jesus tells him, go directly to the priest. Like, show yourself to the priest. Follow the Levitical law. This man is healed. But he also goes on and says, don't tell anyone what happened. 
because Jesus has the ability to walk into communities, to share, to help people. And the most important thing is not the miracles, it's the message. Right. And so Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody. But when God moves in your life, it's hard, right? We don't understand. Why would he tell me not to tell anybody? We have good intentions. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, and it says, instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. But we got to look at the next part of this. As a result... Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but stayed outside in lonely places. Wow. Because people chased the miracle over the message. And when this guy proclaimed, no matter how well his intentions were, he blinded the message for the miracle and that isolated Jesus. Now, worry, man, today as Christians, we've got to be to a place where the message of Christ is most important because we may be isolating Christ because we're so focused on the miracle and Jesus didn't, he's not in our life to be the miracle worker. He's in our life to be the bringer of salvation. And that comes through the word of freedom. To be our atonement, reconciling us to God. And so what's, what's crazy here is the man who was under the Levitical law finds freedom to enter back in the community, but Jesus had to switch places. And now he's isolated in lonely places. Because Jesus bore our sin on the cross for me and you, um, he had to become unclean. Yes. He took our uncleanliness on himself. He was despised. He was rejected. In Hebrews 13, 11, it says the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. So the dead carcass that no one could touch had to be eliminated outside of the city so no one in the city became unclean. And so Jesus through his death, takes on our uncleanliness, and he has to do that outside the city. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing this, the disgrace he bore. And so Jesus suffering outside of the city gate, outside the camp where he's crucified, um, it tells us now, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Meaning, let us get to a place where we're not so focused on fitting in with the culture now. But let us be to a place where we'll go after the unclean. And in this, we've got to be cautious because it's it's not based on let us go take part in the unclean. Let us go bring the unclean to a place to defile others. But go out to evangelize. Go out to disciple and bring in as we clean. Right? But we cannot let the yeast come in and infect. And so there's this balance. Um, we want to go after that which is lost, yes. but we do not want to celebrate or condone being lost. Right. right? In our last episode, I think it was that you just briefly mentioned Isaiah 53. That's a great picture of this message of Jesus taking this uncleanness on himself, dying for our sins outside of the city gates, outside of the community. Isaiah 53, 3 and 4 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. That whole chapter is just beautiful. And if you've never heard the gospel message through the words of Isaiah, the gospel message is beautiful in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I would encourage you just sit with Isaiah 53 
read that whole chapter in light of what we're learning here about our need for purification to bring about atonement to reconcile us to God from our state of uncleanness and hear the gospel through those words given to us from Isaiah. I've sat with people before and they're like, how can a loving God um, cast people out? And so God is love, so he is the standard of love, right? So we can't measure God based on our standard of love. Well, if Christ is love, and everybody sees Jesus as loving, and so they say that Jesus, I believe in, but Jesus also rebuked sin. Jesus, Jesus understood the penalty of sin, and what we miss is Jesus does tell us what must be removed, but when he took on sin, he himself took on the, the shame, the disgrace. He walked, he went outside the city. He was crucified out the city. He was buried outside of the city, right? He endured all of that until the resurrection, the redemption, right? The change. And then he can come back. Yeah. And he doesn't come back until he's fully walked through the penalty. Sin, even, even though it wasn't his sin. Yeah. Now that same prophet Isaiah, who we referenced a moment ago, who gave us this picture of Christ's suffering and taking on our uncleanness, our iniquity onto himself, he provides a powerful picture for us of the need for purification that leads to atonement, reconciliation with God in the actual commission he received from God at the beginning of the book of Isaiah to go out and speak the word of the Lord. So we'll just read together Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I just have to say there. This, this is, is one, one of the most humbling passages. passages. If we really grasp coming into God's presence, yes. we, I don't think we would, we would come disbelieving His ability to love us. But I think at the same point, we would, we would remove some stuff from our lives going into His presence. Because look at these, these angels. They're covering their faces because they're not worthy to look upon Him. They're covering their feet because of their feet being where they walk, what they've trotted, where their uncleanliness of this. And so we look at this picture and it's like, imagine as we come into the presence of God, the things that we may hold on to or that we could get rid of, the things that we could let go of that defile us, even in His presence, there's a place to where it's kind of like, oh, I wish I hadn't done this. I wish I had given this up. I wish I had laid this down. And so there's this beautiful act of worship in becoming clean because we will not feel worthy to look upon Him. Right. Right? To stand in His presence. And yet how much better would it be if to be able to be in front of Him, we, even in that, that humility, we're able to say, but I thank God I gave this up. Yes. I thank God this was not on me when I came in His presence. Now at the beginning, we mentioned that unclean refers to something that cannot be in the presence of God. And I mentioned there that the law was never meant to be a checklist to get us to clean. It was supposed to expose our uncleanness. And I want you to see how that happens to Isaiah here. What being in the presence of God exposes to him at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, 
and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. There's a strong picture there of what we've been talking about. Our very humanity results in uncleanness when we are faced with the presence of God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for, which is what we've been talking about. We need atonement to be reconciled to God, to be in a state of clean so that we can dwell in his presence. So Jesus coming ushered in this new covenant kingdom where all people can be considered co-heirs with Christ. We become children of God. This inheritance of God's glory to be in God's presence, uh, to be his glorious people, uh, it comes because Christ paid the price and brought us in. And Jesus did things that would surprise people during his ministry on, on earth. And so we've, we've talked about the lepers and can look at the unclean and the blacklisted and uh, how they had to warn people as they approached, screaming unclean, wearing clothes that stood out, hair that was unkempt. And yet when a man of leprosy came to approach Jesus, it says Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. So those who were willing to come to Jesus, knowing they were unclean, accepting they were unclean, but not staying in that, but saying, you could heal me if you're willing. Jesus, Jesus says, I'm willing. And throughout his ministry, this is what he does. He invites outsiders in for those who are morally impure, outsiders, people that are outside of God's will, to those who are ritually unclean, spiritually unclean, people that are pushed outside of the community, and he makes them a part of the kingdom, a part of the family. And there were people that didn't like this because they they had a comfortable they had a comfortable kingdom. They had they had their people, their way, their processes. And seeing people that were considered impure brought back in was hard. The Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, those with authority, expressed their frustrations, how they were displeased over the failure of Jesus' disciples washing their hands. And we look in Matthew 15, it says, Some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So what they're doing is misusing the law. They're, they're, they're using the law to oppose people and to be prejudiced, right? Um, the, the reason this was in the law was to make sure that they, these people were hurting animals. They were hurting. They were hurting animals. They, were, they, were, they didn't have the sanitation that we have today. And so when they would eat, they would need to wash their hands to make sure bacteria and stuff didn't go into their body. And the Pharisees have turned this into a spiritual thing over saying Gentiles are unclean. And so, in essence, while they were trading in the marketplace, they wanted them to wash the Gentile off of them before they would eat. And so, Jesus is affirming this, this spiritual status of Gentiles being able to come into the kingdom. This is why Jesus corrects them, calls out their racism, and points to a place about being impure is not about what you're eating or what's going into your mouth. Yeah. That, it, that, that's not the spiritual aspect of this, but what comes out of your mouth, the way you say it, what you mean, what you misuse, that can be spiritually unclean. An important lesson here is that it's just as wrong to add to God's commands as it is to ignore His commands. So, putting it like this, if you disobey God's commands by just refusing to do what He says, that's wrong. But if you take His commands and misuse them to hurt or degrade other people, that's, that's just as wrong, if not worse.
So Matt, you referenced Acts chapter 10 earlier. That's a scripture we can point to where God impressed this truth on his apostle Peter about how he was going to welcome the Gentiles into the kingdom, those who had been excluded by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We'll just read this in Acts 10, 23 through 35. This is an account of an encounter between Cornelius, a Gentile, and Peter following a vision that Christ had given Peter. It says, the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now listen, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So why is it against their law? Because they saw the Gentile people as unclean, and God is here correcting that. So when I was sent for, Peter says, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius said, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. See, in this old covenant that we're currently reading about in Leviticus, God had an agreement a promise that he had made to the nation of Israel, sides that he was going to uphold promises he was going to fulfill and commands that they were supposed to uphold as well. But Jesus comes and he makes a way for all people to enter this new covenant. And he does the same for us because regardless of our past, regardless of our social status, he invites us and tells us to also go and invite others. So if we're going to seek to be in the presence of God, we are going to still need cleanness. We're going to need holiness. That's what this is a picture of, our ability to be in the presence of God. And we find that cleanness, that holiness, through purification and atonement that comes from Jesus. First John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. There's the purification so that we can have atonement, reconciliation with God. So we have a couple of options here. We can trust and follow Jesus who bore our sins and who continually cleanses us of our impurity when we repent and when we seek holiness, or we can remain in a state of uncleanness, which has tragic consequences. And like you pointed out, Matt, it was harder to return to a state of cleanness than to become unclean because to be clean required obedience and intentionality. And it's the same way for us today. There is some intentional choices and actions that we have to take to be brought into a state of cleanness, to have our sins washed away, 
and here's why this matters so much. I want you just to hear the description of the new heaven and the new earth that we find at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, 27. It says nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we have to put off our uncleanness because it will not enter heaven. You know, a beautiful piece of this that if you look from the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation, we end the same way, right? In the beginning, we didn't eat meat because that would require taking life. Yeah. And so we were vegetarians until sin entered in. After the flood, God said, it's yours. He gives them the animals to kill and to eat, but they must die. It causes death. There's a consequence for life at this point. And it's not until we get to Moses that we start looking at this change of what the diet can be because he's setting up this picture of redemption for a time until people can be redeemed. At the, at the coming of Jesus, we have this picture of the, the law changing so that that what was considered unclean can be clean. And then we get to the place where we're back in heaven, in the garden, and there's no death. Right. There's, there's no, no more lambs to be slain. slain. There's, there's no, no more sickness. sickness. There's, there's no more pain. There's no more impurity. Right. We're back in the presence of God without defilement, defilement without, without the, the cause of death for life. Yes. And I just think that's amazing. There's a story that Max Licato wrote based off of Jesus and the leper. And if we could take a moment, I'd like to read this story so that I could hopefully get you to a place where you could experience the change that, that would be felt in a person who was unclean and gets redeemed. For five years, no one touched me. No one. Not one person. Not my wife. Not my child. Not my friends. No one touched me. They saw me. They spoke to me. I sensed love in their voices. I saw concern in their eyes, but I didn't feel their touch. There was no touch, not once. No one would touch me. What is common to you, I coveted. Handshakes, warm embraces, a tap on the shoulder to get my attention, kiss on the lips, steal my heart. Such moments were taken from my world, and no one touched me. No one bumped into me. What I would have given just for someone to bump into me, to be caught in a crowd, from my shoulder just to brush against another's. But for five years, it's not happened. How could it? I was not allowed on the streets. Even the rabbis kept their distance from me. I wasn't permitted in the synagogue. Not even welcome in my own house. I was untouchable, a leper. And no one touched me until today. One year during harvest, my grip was on the side and it seemed weak. The tips of my fingers were numb. First one finger and then another. Within a short time, I couldn't grip the tool. I couldn't hardly feel it. By the end of the season, I felt nothing at all. The hand, the hand grasping, grasping the handle might as well have belonged to someone else. The feeling was gone. I didn't say anything to my wife, but I know she suspected something. How could she not? I carried my hand against my body like a wounded bird. 
one afternoon, I plunged my hands into a basin of water, intending to wash my face, and the water turned red. My finger was bleeding, and it was just freely bleeding. I didn't even know I was wounded. How, how did I cut myself? On a knife? Did my hand slide across the sharp edge of metal? I must have... But I didn't feel anything. It's on your clothes, too, my wife said softly. She was behind me. Before looking at her, I looked at the crimson spots on my robe. For the longest time, I stood over the basin, staring at my hand. Somehow I knew my life was forever going to be changed. She silently asked, shall I go with you to tell the priest? No, I sighed. I'll go alone. I turned and looked into her moist eyes. Standing next to her was our three-year-old daughter. Squatting down, I gazed into her face and stroked her cheek. I said nothing. What could I say? Again, I stood and I looked at my wife. She touched my shoulder. With my good hand, I touched hers. It would be our final touch. Five years have passed, and no one has touched me since. Till today. But the priest didn't touch me. He looked at my hand, now wrapped in a rag. He looked at my face, now shadowed in sorrow. Can't fault him for what he said. He was only doing as he was instructed. He covered his mouth and extended his hand, palm forward. He said, you are unclean. With one pronouncement, I lost my family, my farm, my future, my friends. My wife met me at the city gates with a sack of clothing and bread and coins. She didn't even speak. By now, friends had gathered. What I saw in their eyes was a precursor to what I've seen in every eye since. Fearful pity. When I stepped out, they stepped back. Their horror of my disease was greater than their concern from a heart. So they and everyone else I have seen since stepped back from me. How I repulsed those who saw me. Five years of leprosy left my hands gnarled. Tips of my fingers were missing, as were portions of an ear in my nose. Inside of me, Fathers grabbed their children, mothers covered their faces, children, children pointed and stared. The rags on my body couldn't hide my sores, nor could the wrap on my face hide the rage in my eyes. I didn't even try to hide it. How many nights did I shake my crippled fist at the silent sky? Why did I deserve this? What did I do? There was never a reply. Some people assumed I sinned. Some said my parents must have sinned. I don't know. All I know is that I grew so tired of everything. Sleeping in the colony, smelling the stench. 
grew so tired of the damnable bell I was required to wear around my neck to warn people of my presence as if I needed it. One glance and the announcement began. Unclean, unclean, unclean. Several weeks ago, I dared to walk the road to my village. I didn't intend to enter. Heaven knows I only wanted to look again at my fields, look at my home, and maybe see the face of my wife. And I didn't see her. I saw some children playing in a pasture. I quickly hid behind a tree and watched them as they ran back and forth. Their faces were so joyful. And laughter so contagious that for a moment, just, just a moment, I was no longer a leper. I was a farmer. I was a father. I was a man. Infused with their happiness, I stepped out from behind the tree, straightened my back, and I breathed deeply. And then they saw me. Before I could, before I could retreat, they saw me, and they screamed, and they scattered. One. One lingered just for a little while behind the others. One paused and looked in my direction. I don't know. I can't say for sure. But I think, I really think she was my daughter. And I don't know, I really can't say for sure. But I think maybe she was looking for her father. That look is what made me take the step I took today. Of course, it was reckless. It was risky. What did I have to lose? He calls himself God's son. Either he's going to hear my complaint and kill me, or accept my demands and heal me. Those were my thoughts. I came to him as a defiant man, moved not by faith, but by desperate anger. God, who wrought this calamity on my body, would be, would be the one, one to either fix it or end it. But then I saw him. When I saw him, I was changed. You gotta remember, I'm a farmer, not a poet. So I can't find the words to describe what I saw. All I can say is that the Judean mornings are sometimes so fresh and the sunrise is so glorious that to look at them is to forget the heat of the day before and the hurt of times past. When I looked at his face, I saw a Judean morning. Before he spoke, I knew he cared. Somehow, I knew he hated this disease as much, no, more than I hated it. My rage became trust. And my anger became hope. From behind a rock, I watched him descend the hill. Throngs of people followed him. I waited until he was only a few feet from me. Then I stepped out. Master. Master! He stopped and looked in my direction as did dozens of others. A flood of fear swept across the crowd. Arms flew in front of faces. Children ducked behind parents. Shouted. Again, Again I, I, don't I don't blame them. them. I, was I was a huddled, huddled mass of death. But I could barely even hear them. I barely, I barely even saw them. Their panic, Their panic I had seen a thousand times. His, his compassion was something I had never beheld. 
everyone stepped back except for him. He stepped toward me. Toward me. Five years ago, my wife had stepped toward me. She was the last to do so. And now, he was stepping towards me. I didn't move. I just spoke. Lord, you can heal me if you will. Had he healed me with a word, I would have been thrilled. <laughs> Had he cured me with a prayer, I would have rejoiced. But he, he wasn't satisfied with speaking to me. He drew close to me. He touched me. Five years ago, my wife had touched me. And no one had touched me since until today. I will. His words were as tender as his touch. Be healed. Energy flooded from my body like water through a furrowed field. And in an instant, in a moment, I felt warmth where there had been numbness. I felt strength where there had been atrophy. My back straightened and my head lifted. Where I had been eye level with his belt, I now stood eye level with his face, his smiling, beautiful face. He cupped his hands on my cheeks and drew me so near I could feel the warmth of his breath and see the wetness in his eyes. Don't tell anyone about this. Go and show yourself to the priest. Offer the gift Moses commanded for people who are made well. This will show the people what I've done. So that's where I'm going. I will show myself to my priest and I will embrace him. I will show myself to my wife, and I will embrace her. I will pick up my daughter, and I will embrace her. I will hold her, and I will never forget the one who dared to touch me. He could have healed me with a word, but he wanted to do more than heal me. He wanted to honor me, to validate me, to christen me. Imagine that. Unworthy of the touch of a man, yet worthy of the touch of God.